Blog Talk Radio. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, re- the wealthy, that, the real owners, the big, wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. (laughs) You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they use to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Yeah. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. Hello and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Man, I just never get sick of that clip, but I do promise I will be finding some more clips of not just George Carlin or Network for that matter, but uh, some other things that are relevant to what it is we're dealing with. If this is your first time tuning in to V Radio, um, welcome to the broadcast. You can make a free Blog Talk Radio account, basically like a social media account that will allow you to follow this show and participate in the chat room if you so desire. Um, And in the description of the show, you'll find different links to my Facebook presence for the show. 
I do have a Patreon for the show, but I don't really expect anybody to be jumping on doing that with this current pandemic. But in the event that you do ever feel like you want to support what I'm doing, feel free. In addition to that, if you go back and look at my archives, uh, you will notice that I've had uh, documentary filmmakers, activists, scientists, um, you know, different people without, throughout the spectrum, senators, congressmen, presidential candidates, including my guest today, I might add, who was a presidential candidate at one time. And um, I'm also currently in the middle of doing a third-party candidate series. So for those of you who, for example, have decided that you're going to dem exit hashtag at the end of all of this, if they don't nominate Bernie Sanders, there's a lot of other good candidates that you could give your vote to just to kind of show support for their ideas and a great way to stick your middle finger up at the DNC, which is exactly what I did in 2016. (laughs) So anyway, um, and that's not just left-leaning people either. I'm also bringing on libertarian candidates, and I'm, I've made some overtures to the Constitution Party, which is more of like a Christian right-leaning party as well. Um, and I also plan on hosting some third-party debates where candidates from the, the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, will first be able to debate with each other and then eventually be able to debate with everybody in a general election debate where I plan on trying to take some of the questions that are going to be asked to Donald Trump and whoever the Democratic nominee is and ask the, those same questions to these third-party candidates and give them an opportunity. So um, today's show, however, I decided that because I'm tired of the constant conversations about this topic, there's a lot of misunderstandings about what socialism is, and more specifically, how much of a socialist is Bernie Sanders? Why is, you know, and so I decided the best avenue to go about doing that would be to ask the socialist that I would say I trust the most on the topic, and that would be Brian Moore, the Socialist Party candidate from 2008 for the Socialist Party USA. So, Brian, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate the invitation. So, Brian, you know, I had, you know, talked to you way back in 2008, back when I was a right-leaning libertarian, and, you know, you and I had a great broadcast and, you know, kind of forged a, a bit of a friendship, and, you know, I'm definitely glad to have known you. I learned a lot from our podcast, and I actually still quote you all the time and if anybody does want to tune into that podcast it's still available on my blog talk radio account there's still shows archived there going all the way back to 2008 when i started it um now brian one of the things in specific that i wanted to discuss with you because i also remember the same thing um back when 2008 was going on that you were hoping that people understood the difference between you know voting for you or voting for the democrat um you know but that kind of brings us back to this which is so you're a socialist. Explain to us why Bernie Sanders is not really a socialist. Well, he's, uh, first of all, working within the capitalist system. He's advocating a lot of uh, government entitlements, either increasing them or eliminating uh, the debts or the obligations, uh, basically within the system. And uh, he he. I don't think he, he try to reform capitalism rather than to advocate socialism. He doesn't want to transfer the economic system from private sector to uh, uh, workers or worker cooperatives uh, or the community itself, where they make the decisions as to production and distribution and investments and things of that nature. So uh he uh, even his his what they he says radical reforms 
are really uh, very moderate when you compare them to Europe. Uh, the democratic socialists in Europe uh, have the same programs already. So he's really working within the capitalist system and uh, he's tweaking it more than anything else. But he doesn't advocate the, the nationalization of, uh, for example, the, um, the banks or uh, ownership of uh, private industries uh, uh, by the, uh, the workers or worker co-ops and things of that nature. So, And another thing, too, is <clears throat> even if he accomplished uh, his program within the system, if, if we saw uh, inflation or a recession or any kind of economic downside come about, the economic powers that be, the corporate entities uh, that still have all the money, uh, they would exert their pressures and basically uh, influence the Congress to downsize all these social programs. And then they'd put the, the blame on on these socialist ideas or liberal or progressive ideas. So, uh, and they even probably would bring out the military or the, the police to get their point across. So it's, um, I think it's wishful thinking on the part of Mr. Sanders that he is going to achieve any kind of uh, economic system change. It will be just a reform of within the capitalist system, and it will be temporary and, I think, superficial. So I guess, um, you know, again, also to my audience, since I know a lot of them are Bernie supporters, and I'm not even, you know, you know, bringing this on just for the perspective of trying to say there's something wrong with what he's doing. It's just more that I want to draw a distinction, an important one, between the the Red Scare, communist, socialist thing that mm-hmm. the people of the United States have been led to believe represents communism and where Bernie Sanders is. And I think you've, you've illustrated a lot of that, you know, and, and you're talking about like the workers owning it. Um, and, and that's definitely, at least to me, um, preferable than, you know, than just outright nationalizing everything for sure. And I think that's another aspect of like more extreme, um, communism, you know, where they just take over everything and then the state owns everything. And Bernie Sanders has openly stated, that's not what he advocates. Um, you know, I think that there might've been a time over the course of his life when he might've been pondering on that, you know, but Mm -hmm. people evolve. And I don't think that's where he is now, even if it's just from the perspective of that he's fully aware of the fact that suggesting that that could ever happen in the United States is just unrealistic. Um, you know, so, I mean, go ahead with your thoughts on it. Well, I mean, how can you say that at the present time? I mean, uh, we've seen uh, capitalism is dependent upon the economy and the market and and upon uh, uh profit-making and growth. And when an economic downside comes around, everything falls apart. And uh, as a result, this is a obviously a, a radical example of the weakness of capitalism because we're not even prepared to address uh, uh, a systemic uh, failure of the healthcare system. You know, had we had we had a socialist program uh, in in place uh, under a, a socialist economic system, the hospitals would have been owned by the the government, and the the nurses and doctors would have been salaried, uh, and uh, we would have had a sufficient uh, organized uh, uh, system of healthcare 
to the entire nation, and obviously we would have a sufficient number of uh, equipment, protective equipment, ventilators, things of that nature. It would be just the nature of the system itself uh, to protect its citizens. But under uh, capitalism, that, that just doesn't happen. It's the survival of the fittest. It's where you can make a profit. And uh, it's, it's demonstrating how unprepared our country is under this type of economic system. So when something like this happens, I think it makes Americans wonder and ponder, and it's ripe for uh, in the near future of seeing a radical change. Um, I'm not saying that they're they're willing to, uh, uh, you know, throw over capitalism immediately. But I think if you get a a representative of socialism that advocates a a a change, on, but done on a moderate way over a 10 or 20 or 30 year period, where all the workers are protected and the communities are protected. Then I think they 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 would uh, be more accepting to that because I think they're full of fear and panic. I mean, panic happens under capitalism, and I don't well, think there would be that unpreparedness under a socialist economic system. Now, so what do you say to people who? And I, I mean, I know what my answer to this would be. So you know, I you know, I get it for sure. But what do you say to people who point at Italy's? socialized medicine is an example of why this is why we shouldn't do this. You know, um, what, what would your be your, your retort to that? Well, I'm unfamiliar with the Italians system. Uh, I'm more familiar, I think with, with the British system um, that has a, you know, there's 37 countries around the world that have national health systems. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, other than I, I don't think that that healthcare system uh, may have had the uh, the the preparedness because of maybe its economic status. I mean, it's, or if it's changing governments. Um, so um, it's untested, I guess, and uh, I can't really uh, give you a, no, that, a good that, answer. No, that makes sense. You know, the the point that I think also, though, is that any system, capitalist, communist, socialist, whatever, could be overwhelmed by a disaster. I mean, that's why it's a disaster. <laughs> you know, um, I think what would be majorly different, you know, whether it be Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism approach or a standard socialism approach, is that what would be different overall is that what we're seeing right now within the for-profit healthcare system is that, companies are just lining up to figure out how they can make the most money from this epidemic. The company that owns the uh, malaria mm-hmm. drug that Trump is talking about, like tripled the price or something ridiculous like that. And I mm-hmm. mean, that's not a new thing that's been happening a lot lately. Like the, the EpiPen and Martin Screlly, you know, his company owned the EpiPen, which is a, a critical drug that can save a child's life if they have an allergic reaction. And they, and it had been a, fairly steady affordable price for many years and then just all of a sudden out of nowhere they just start jacking the price up um i had watched a documentary that uh, it was actually on netflix unfortunately i can't remember the name i'll have to look it up because it'd be good to have that whoever made it on the show and i've had a lot of documentary filmmakers on but you know the the picture for the documentary was a picture of martin screlly so i went into the documentary assuming that we were going to be looking at martin screlly and the first thing the guy said at the beginning of the the documentary was like you know, when um, 
I saw them talking about Martin Scully, the first thing I thought of is like, these people don't know anything because there's this other guy who's just so much worse. And the documentary was all about him. And I guess there's literally a healthcare company that's entire purpose in its existence essentially is to go buy smaller healthcare companies. They don't do any research of their own. He's a drug company. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't do any research of their own. Um, in fact, like 1% of their, their money is spent on researching the rest of it is all spent on buying other companies, getting their patents and jacking the price up of anything that they have that has inelastic demand. Um, so one of the examples that they gave was a woman. She couldn't even appear on camera because she didn't want anybody to know she had this because she was concerned about whether or not she'd ever be able to get a job again. But basically she had her husband did all the talking and she has a really rare disease that makes your body unable to process copper. People tend to forget that we eat copper. If you look at your cereal box, you'll see that copper is usually in your cereal. But anyway, if you don't have this drug and you have this condition, she would die within a month. And so this company purchased the patent on her drug and then jacked the price up to the point that now it costs her insurance company $100,000 a year for this person to be Mm -hmm. able to continue to live. And there's no law against any of this. They just do it. Sometimes the congressmen and the senators will make some kind of a show and you know, like they did with Screlly and drag him before the, you know, before the Congress to answer for it, but they didn't do anything to him about it. The only reason Screlly went to jail is because he did something else. You know, I definitely, you know, understand completely from, from the perspective of just what it comes down to at the end of the day is that certain things with inelastic demand, because if you don't have them, you're going to die, probably should not be profit-based industries. Well, the uh, you know the, the principles of socialism is based on democratic participation and an equal, uh, egalitarian approach to uh, all citizens and uh, workers, so that you share in the profits, you share in the distribution of goods. It doesn't mean everybody gets the same thing, but it means that uh, everybody is protected and and all economic decisions whether it be on production or distribution or investment, is based on benefiting the community and on on an equal basis. Where would you find that under capitalism? Those are not the the foundations of capitalism. Capitalism is is based on the profit motive and on growth and on self-interest and being selfish, whereas in a sense under socialism it's more community-minded you have more people making the decisions as opposed to the elite at the top uh, and then, you know, setting the policy and imposing it upon the vast majority of people. I know Mr. Sanders is very good about uh, highlighting the, the, the terrible distribution of uh, wealth in this country, like the top 50 or 100 people, uh, you know, make more money than, you know, over 3 billion people in in the world, I guess. Um, And and in no way would that be uh, allowed or or permitted under socialism. And when you have such uh, an unfair system under capitalism, uh, you have, you end up with perennial wars, with poverty, with uh, starvation, and uh, that you get into these political fights and uh, self-interest uh, motivations. So uh, there's a lot of you know human uh, factors that play under the the um, 
capitalist system that would not be prevalent under socialism. I mean, don't get me wrong, human nature is human nature, and and everybody is selfish, so you have to police socialism and monitor socialism uh, just as much as you do capitalism, and there will be abuses and, and uh, corruption. But I think the nature of the system itself is so much fairer and so much more just and so much more uh, democratic and community-minded than what we're living under right now. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and I think that the one of the biggest problems is, is that there was so much energy spent on the part of the government, you know, particularly during the Cold War, in an effort to demonize socialism and communism to the point where we're not even really dealing with anything reasonable. It's like a caricature. People understand an, a caricature of it, you know, and mm-hmm. the, the other thing that I've noticed is that people tend to not recognize. And I think that and I remember saying this actually before when I was discussing the Venus Project with people was that, you know, it, that both like high end corrupted communism like you have in the Soviet Union and the capitalism that we see now both have situations where there are these, you know, this this small group of people that seem to be doing better than everybody else. You know, and then there's all these deaths and people tend to not look at the deaths caused by capitalism because they're Mm -hmm. externalized to other countries. (laughs) It's not that it's not happening. It's that capitalist countries, when they decide Mm -hmm. it's time that they need to do some killing, it's going to be things like the Iraq war because they want their oil. You know, um, I brought up the book. Uh, War is a Racket that was brought up in the Zeitgeist film by Peter Joseph, but it was also, you know, it just, it's an excellent way of reading that this problem has been going on well before our current situation. General Butler was a general in the Marine Corps be- before World War II. He had actually predicted it was going to happen in his book too. But the funny thing is, is that he just pointed out that like all of these wars that you see in the Marine Corps fight song, like from the halls of Montezuma, to, you know, like to the shores mm-hmm. of Tripoli, those are all campaigns that General Butler talked about were entirely essentially pushed for by corporations, that wealthy people pushed the United mm-hmm. States government into going to those countries, you know, whether it was slaughtering people in, in South America for United Fruit because United Fruit wanted to be able to plant the citrus crops there. You know, mm-hmm. or you know the oil stuff we all know about, but it's so much more than that. And um, you know, I actually brought on one of the authors of the uh, the book "Addicted to War" at one point on my podcast. I'll have to go back and look into that. But there was a really good little comic book discussing this. But the point is, is that there are still millions of people getting killed in the name of capitalism. It just doesn't happen at your front door, so you don't see it. And you know, it's like an out of sight, out of mind. But um, you know, I'll let you respond to what I just said with that before I move on. But you know, then I want to talk about another point. So go ahead. Well, um, I think a recent example would be um, Venezuela. You know, we—he's uh, uh, let's see, Chavez was elected in 1998. He was democratically elected as a socialist, and then he died of cancer, and then Maduro came along. And uh, we talk about these terrible socialist countries and, you know, led by people that are, they're starving and uh, they're just racking havoc on the people and we need to get rid of them. And, we, you know, we, we send in people covertly or we support non-candidates out of, the, out of, the <laughs> out of nowhere who, who weren't even elected democratically. But what, what, what brought this all about? 
you know, we increased economic and diplomatic sanctions. Uh, this administration, the Obama administration, previous administrations, the Bush administration on Venezuela. Okay, we we curtailed uh, efforts in their banks. We reduced petroleum uh, so that uh, they couldn't. Uh, other countries could purchase from Venezuela. We uh, we cut countries' imports of medicine and food and equipment. And as a result, uh, Venezuela ended up having a difficult time maintaining its water systems and electrical power and sanitation. And as a result, uh, malnutrition and illness and deaths came about. And, you know, our, our government and our politicians pointed the finger at, uh, at the socialist system when, in fact, I believe that it was the American government's policies and sanctions um, just like they did on Iran uh, several decades ago, that has that created great hardships and suffering on the part of people. So that was a graphic example of where capitalism and the American capitalism is not what you call exceptionalism. It's one of the dark points of our history that uh, we as Americans should be ashamed of and try to fight to change that. And that's one of the reasons why I involve myself politically and civically is because uh, I don't like some of these uh, foreign policies and domestic policies that really uh, hurt the vast majority of, of our citizens. And that's just a recent example. And you could go back on World War One. you know, 20 million people were billed, were killed, over and it was really because of the bank's self-interest and uh, Vietnam. Uh, you know, we ended up losing 58,000 Americans for what? Because we were afraid of the domino theory. You know, and uh, we were going to end the war in 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 '69 when Nixon was elected, and it didn't end until '75. Uh, so uh, Allende in Chile, a socially elected Democrat. Uh, or democratically elected socialists, excuse me, in Salvador Allende in 1973, he was he was basically assassinated. He may have committed suicide, but it was from the the, the military pressures imposed by the Chilean military and the American military. I mean, our government under Kissinger and Nixon sent uh, weapons in diplomatic pouches to. Uh, private citizens and we paid off the newspapers and paid off uh, opposition groups to oppose Allende because he was the damn socialist and uh, you know 30 40 years later as our University of Chicago economists uh, advised uh, Pinochet of Chile how to improve his economy in a, in a conservative economy and he was very fascist in his administration now Chile's in the throes of rioting and and uh, deprivation and 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 you can you can trace that back to uh, the American government's undermining of a democratically elected socialist and then imposing our own will in the form of fascist leaders and uh, very conservative policies. Well, yeah, I know you, I went on and on. You... But... <laughs> Well, yeah, no, for sure. Everything you just talked about there, because they keep bringing up Venezuela and all the debates I have with them. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I say it's interesting because 
Sanders isn't pointing at Venezuela. He's pointing at Denmark or Sweden or the different, you know, Nordic countries. Um, right. You know, but I agree with you that it's entirely possible that there was sabotage. Um, in the film Zeitgeist Addendum, uh, he, in, he interviews the man uh, who basically, he wrote a book, I believe it was called The Economic Hitman. And he was referring to the fact that he was paid by private corporations to go into countries and to try to corrupt their officials for corporate, you know, for corporate interests. And he gave a lot of different examples of different things that he was involved in. And that included Chavez, mm-hmm. you know, um, but at the end of the day, you know, the United, the corporation's interest in getting rid of these countries had very little to do with their concerns about, you know, communism and socialism and had everything to do with their concerns about the fact that they would nationalize the natural resources in those countries and then use the mm-hmm. money to help the people of those countries instead of sending them somewhere else. You know, that's like when you talk about the externalizing of the, the starvation and the death, Africa has some of the most you know, vast quantities of natural resources, in particular things like diamonds and coltan. Yet for some reason, these countries are the poorest and have massive starvation. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason why is because, you know, um, capitalism gone awry essentially when predatory capitalism happens you know those countries find their way into your country they bribe your officials you know or they come up with some reason to invade and take over Mm -hmm. you know and that's again because it's the dark side of capitalism that is not right there at their front door they don't it's out of sight out of mind for the average american they don't realize that you know what's going on is you know as far as you know if we're going to talk about the comparisons of evil you know for one system for or another these things are all happening, but people are just not aware of it and they tune it out, you know, as long as they have their, you know, what was it their their toaster oven and their steel belted radials mm-hmm. and just leave me alone. <laughs> like the guy from network said, you know, well, did you have something you, you know, want to say on that before I go further? <clears throat> well, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, that recently, you know, even Sanders didn't want to uh, highlight Venezuela as much as he wanted to highlight the, the, uh, you know the Denmark and Sweden and so forth, and and at the State of the Union message, all the Democrats got up and with the Republicans, people in the Democratic Party, and applauded when Trump talked about, uh, you know, uh, supporting this guy um, Gaeto, the, the the civilian or the the politician that uh, the American government decided should be the president in place of Maduro. And, um, you know, I failed to mention when I was criticizing, critical of the American government and its impact upon Venezuela, all the good that Venezuela did for its people, especially the low-income people and the low-middle-class uh, low people. He, he, they improved uh, uh, the education system, the, the availability of food, jobs, housing. I mean, it was an incredible, and and their elections were models for the for the world to see. Even Jimmy Carter went down there and and acknowledged that they were done in a very uh, proper manner. Uh, now, I do admit that recently, with the pressures of uh, losing the the drop of the oil prices and the pressure, uh, uh, the diplomatic and the uh, um, junction, injunctions that we've imposed on them, it's, it's causing um, a, government, a government that was decent to fall back and depend upon the military for its protection, and also that the deprivation of rights. There are some rights that are now being deprived, just as they were in, in Cuba. But Cuba also achieved a lot, as, as Sanders did say. 
he did talk about the education and the health care in in um, in Cuba that that did occur and the, that should be applauded and um you know we don't talk about uh, like you say the people that were were killed uh under uh, a capitalist supported system uh, all they do is uh, the, the critics concentrate on Castro assassinating um, um several hundred people or you know even in Panama this guy uh, uh, uh what was his name it wasn't Torrios but it was the the um, the general that followed Torrios uh, i think he was uh, involved there was a question as to one individual one single individual that was mysteriously killed and yet we brought this guy up from Panama, put him in jail for 20 years. He died in in jail of cancer or let him go the last couple of weeks. Uh, Noriega was General Noriega. Right. But, I mean, yet, and yet we let this uh, – there's this other uh, Cuban who was guilty of planting a bomb in a Cuban airlines that killed 78 people. But because he was an anti-Castro Cuban – we did nothing. We let him live in Miami, and I, I think he's still living there. Uh, and so, this is the hypocrisy of our of our economic systems that that has to, I think, anger all fair-minded people. Well, I think that they basically were just. It's really hard to pin anything on Bernie Sanders because he's been very consistent and because he is a very sincere, genuine guy. Mm-hmm. So they have to do. I mean, like they went so far as to go find clips of his honeymoon <laughs> you know like yeah 50 years ago we need to be looking mm-hmm. at him and jane hanging out in communist russia because that's <laughs> relevant you know uh, i mean that's how desperate you are but you know and he pointed out that barack obama said positive things about cuba but because they're so desperate to find anything that you know um they could possibly twist on him mm-hmm. you know you end up in that situation and you know so i mean for example Nobody argues that um, German scientists during World War II came up with some amazing technology. And a lot of the, mm-hmm. the basic science that they brought up in um, you know, rocketry in particular is still the foundation mm-hmm. that our space program uses today. But you can say right. that without saying that I approve of Nazism. You, know, you can mm-hmm. say that without saying that you approve of you know, totalitarian regimes. And he's called that out more than once. And he openly says, no, I'm not into that. I, you know, I'm into democracy. And the funny thing is, is that even more mainstream socialists like yourself, that's kind of the foundation is that we're going to have more democracy, you know, and we're going to have more, you know, widespread, um, you know, disillusion of power instead of being so reliant on individuals. And I think that, you know, individuals that we elect to supposedly represent us, or maybe we didn't elect them. And that's, that's, I mean, one of the core precipices of it is that I don't think anybody's just, they're just not being intellectually honest about it at the end of the day as to what it is that they're looking at, you know, um, yeah. and like there's well, a one successful, of the, go ahead, go ahead. One of the weaknesses I think of our modern society is that today we're so polarized. It's that you're either with us or against us. You're either a Democrat or a Republican. You're either gay or straight or you know, black or white or rich or poor or whatever. And I think that has fed into this red scare or the politics of fear. It, you know, I mean, you'd think we would have gotten over this uh, issue of, um, 
of 70 years ago. I mean, it was McCarthyism was in the early 50s. I mean, I was a, a little kid then. I don't hardly remember any of it. But um, uh, yet it's still with us. And it's with us because the politicians in both political parties who are dependent upon corporate money and special interest money will then, uh, I think, uh, create fear in the hearts and minds of Americans, average Americans, just to get their points across or justify their positions, but at the expense of the common good, at the expense right. of honesty, okay, and fairness and equality. And this is what I, I, I see, you know, I mean, if anything, it seems like we're going backwards because we're so polarized. I mean, even with these hearings, and it was obviously blatant that that uh, the President Trump was was uh, obstructed justice. But you think, you know, that the Republicans would have admitted to it? They didn't even admit it. They in fact lied about it. And they, and some of the Democrats uh, are shameless as well. So that's why I'm critical of the two party system. Uh, my blog is called Two Party Tyranny, and. Um, uh, I think we need to get beyond uh, – you, 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 you can't reform the system. I, I'm convinced that you have to change the system, and it's events like this. I don't think you can do it from within, as Bernie is trying to do, and I don't think uh, the little people will be able to do it like myself and you. But I think that uh, events like this uh, – will radically alter the mindset of of uh, the common man and as a result i think we're going to see change we're going to have to see change who would be accepting of this this uh, unpreparedness that our so-called great country if we were so-called great why in the hell weren't we ready for this why have are we not prepared you know and now i think i blame it on the self-interest of the system of the of the system and of the the industries that went overseas our inability to manufacture products in our own country um the the uh, just terrible uh, uh division of of, of wealth earnings uh, and even the, the little guy he's got to work two or three jobs just to survive now anyway i'm going on and on <laughs> no no i got you um you know you're definitely right about that. And I, I think that, you know, um, one of the things that Jacques Fresco pointed out, uh, the progenitor of the Venus Project, you know, he had always said that he didn't think it would really be possible until um, there was some kind of a collapse. And I always said to him, I was like, well, why do you feel that way? I mean, couldn't we figure out another way? And he said that, well, unfortunately, it's kind of part of the nature of humans that it's not until some kind of major precipice event that, that shakes them out of their stupor, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, we have so many distractions in our mm -hmm. life right now. That's kind of what the, the network film was trying to bring out was just like, you know, in that guy's rants when he's complaining about how, you know, only like 10% of you people read books or something like that. You know, he was just pointing out that, that some few of the people are awake, you know, and as long as they have their, Literally, literally creature comforts their you know their pro wrestling or their football or you know they, yeah. they don't think yeah. about what's going on you know and mm -hmm. when you look back to rome the the roman power structure literally kept its people in line with bread and circuses you know keep people distracted keep people not thinking about what's really going on 
you know, um, and give them just entertainment to keep them busy and then also to keep them motivated to keep working within the system. And I think that part of the other problem with it is that, you know, if we continue on the path that we are now, even outside of the issue of the pandemic, um, I don't know if you followed Andrew Yang at all, but he was one of the Democratic candidates this year who was a big proponent of the UBI, um, the Universal Basic Income. And Mm -hmm. I remember um, reading his book and he just, he had such a good case for it and it largely, but he also just pointed out automation. You know, a lot of the, a lot of people are just completely unaware of the fact that automation is going to be a very real issue. And I think largely when I would argue with, especially the anarcho-capitalists, like anarchist capitalists, but just free market capitalists in general will pull out, you know, and blow the dust off of their books written by economists in like the fifties or earlier and go see, you know, technological unemployment is a myth because, you know, Ludwig von Mises said so back in like 1941, you know, when the technology wasn't even close to what it is now. If we continue to be in a situation where we're in an every man for himself, you know, the strong shall, shall survive, the weak shall perish. If that is the, the mindset that we are in, you know, when that whole issue, the whole automation issue comes to fruition, a lot of people are going to die. And that that's the part that that they don't want to they don't want to address. They they just you know they like that they have the life that they have now with very easy you know short you know um, very simple mm-hmm. pleasures <clears throat> that you can get your hands on very easily you know and they they're hoping that that can just last forever, but it's not. It's not going to last right. forever. And if we continue mm-hmm. to be in a situation where the only way that you are allowed to be part of society is if you can figure out a way to be more useful to a rich man than some of his money. If that's the system mm-hmm. we're in, we're going to be in a lot of trouble, you know, and the, that actually brings me to the thing that I was talking about to you off the air that is is really disturbing me right now is that the, you're right that there's a precipice going on and that it is bringing out a heightened awareness of things. But what I'm noticing is that that's going in two directions and the, the direction mm-hmm. on the right really frightens me because now right. we're discussing, well, maybe it would be better that we just accept that a lot of our people are going to die so that we don't lose this economy. Like they're starting to actively say that, you know, and that's why. And so they're literally starting to say out loud and Donald Trump is kind of moving in that direction too. He's like, well, maybe Mm -hmm. we'll just turn everything back on in April when everybody with any brain has already told him that that's, that's really dumb. Don't do that. You're going to kill a lot of people. But Mm -hmm. that's why I said that, you know, the whole accusation of the millions of people killed by the Soviet Union and by Mao and China was that mm-hmm. they did this supposedly to prop up the communist economy, that the communist economy didn't work unless they killed off a bunch of people. So now we're in a situation where the capitalist economy is not going to work, you know, at least cannot continue in the way that they expect it to unless we let a bunch of people die. And, and they don't realize that they, they're essentially now they've come full circle. They're literally becoming exactly what they claim that they hate. They don't, they don't make that connection and I make it to them and they're getting really quiet, but the ones who have a conscience are, but some of the ones I debate with, and some of these people are even friends of mine are like, you know, (laughs) no, no, no. We we don't sacrifice the entire economy just because we have grandparents, you know, and I, (laughs) the, the fact that they keep like, just they're, they're now in the bargaining phase. 
There's the stages of grief. Now we're in the bargaining phase. You know, maybe it would be okay if if just my grandparents died, you know, and or or even worse, in many cases they're they're again externalizing it. That's the capitalist solution for any kind of death that has to happen for the economy. Let's just externalize it. So mm-hmm. they're not aware of the fact that they're probably immune compromised people in their life right now who will die. Like they, they've tuned that out. They're, they're, that is no longer their focus. They don't, they don't want to think about that because we got to get back to our beautiful capitalist economy. And apparently that's mm-hmm. more important even than the lives of some people who really are going to be in a situation by no fault of their own. And that attitude also pervades further because they're opposed to any kind of bailouts for the poor. When I bring up that the, the Democrats passed their resolution that very deftly dodged the possibility of helping anybody who was really poor, their first, the Democratic Congress proposed, well, let's just give extended paid sick leave and, you know, that'll help everybody, right? You know, an extended unemployment, we'll do that. And mm-hmm. then in the fine mm-hmm. print, well, yeah, but companies with over 500 employees don't have to do this. So literally the only people who are going to have to help their employees are the small businesses who absolutely cannot afford it. That's what the Democrats put forward. So then the Republicans put forward, well, let's start giving people cash, which was really ironic considering that like four months ago, a lot of these people said Andrew Yang was crazy. Okay. You know, but, you know, but now all of a sudden we're going to go that route, but that's okay because they figured out how to do that right too, quote unquote, right. You know, pun intended. Well, what we need to do then is say, yeah, but to people with zero tax liability, they're only going to get $600. So, but right. other people will get $1,200. You know, right, $600 here we go. Is, <laughs> is barely more than one of my standard paychecks. Like that isn't going to do mm-hmm. anything for me. And the people with zero tax liability are not just people who are not in a situation to pay to the system. They're seniors, you know, that are on Social Security. You know, they're, right. um, they, you know, they, and of course, that's the other thing that I've noticed is that the the illusion that we can't have welfare programs because they'll be abused and if you if you ask the average republican they think that that's what most of the people on welfare are doing when the reality yeah. is even when the republicans have had every opportunity to try to prove that that was true the numbers were more like 1.5% of people participating in the welfare system are fraudulent and they're like, well, that's still a lot of people, so we shouldn't have these programs. I'm like, 1.5% is like, I don't know, it depends on the overall numbers, and I don't have those in front of me. But the point is, is that that's a tiny number in comparison to the amount of people who legitimately need this help, who legitimately couldn't function without it. And that's because we live in a capitalist system, every man for himself. You know? And when we are now in a pandemic where the situation is literally going to remove from the job pool the service sector, like not entirely, but like 90% of it will be gone. The manufacturing sector will also be in an even worse situation than it already was because plants are going to get shut down. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's if we don't want to kill millions of people. That's essentially what we're weighing. And unfortunately, I'm watching as the, the capitalists going through their stages of grief have moved into the bargaining phase. And so now the bargaining includes, you know, like that idiot, the lieutenant governor of Texas said, you know, I think that if they were asked, if we asked the, the elderly, you know, the grandparents, you know, if they would give their lives so that their grandchildren could experience our beautiful capitalist government, you know, I was like, holy crap. 
like this this is just outright psychotic you know and i just yeah people are not putting it together that that that's the state of things you know it's like that's at the deepest darkest depths of the capitalist system is that the strong will survive and the weak shall perish you know and if we have to you know take what we need then fine and i think that what they also don't realize is that if they're concerned that bernie sanders is the is the arbiter of what's going to become a communist revolution like that idiot chris matthews talking about how he might have been executed in central park and all that i'm like bernie sanders doesn't want to do that but i'll tell you this you create a circumstance where there's a massive number of poor people and you're spitting Mm -hmm. in their faces and telling them that they don't deserve a handout when it's literally impossible for them to work that's the kind of circumstances the bolsheviks took advantage of that's the kind of circumstances that the Nazi party took advantage of. If you're worried mm-hmm. about an uprising, you know, where people lead off to some massive extremist leftist situation. I mean, I've already had to go through my head because I mentioned to some of these people because they know me, my daughter who they know could die. She could be dead. Somebody that they right. know, and they're still managing to tune it out. And I, you know, I talked to one of my friends about that today. I was like, you know, if my daughter dies because of this, you know, I don't advocate violence for political purposes at all, but I guarantee you my mentality is going to change drastically if my daughter chokes to death you know, and dies horribly from this disease. That will mm-hmm. be something that would radicalize anybody. So they got to look at it like that. They got to think very carefully about the fact that you know, it's like even in the feudalist system where there were absolute <clears throat> monarchs, it was understood that the peasant class was to expect a certain degree of protection from the royalty. And when that failed, you have let them eat cake and you have Marie Antoinette getting her head cut off. Go ahead. Well, I, you know, you really, I couldn't have said it any better. So that's why I just uh, kind of sat back and listened because I, I did agree with you on most things. And, Getting back to the original reason why we're talking tonight about, you know, why Bernie Sanders isn't a real socialist, what are what, what I'm really getting at, um, or I'd like to take advantage of that saying, is that Bernie Sanders is really not interested in making change, significant change in our country, and he has the support of a, of I think. Uh, of the liberals and the progressives and some in the democratic party. And of course, some are very fearful of it. But the reason, the reason being is that I think that there's sort of a, uh, there's a, a realism uh, that's, uh, that people are striving for in the democratic party. They, they're saying, let's be realistic. We really can't make, significant change so we're going to have to go with whoever can win and even bernie is saying that in the sense that if i can't win i'll support joe biden okay and uh michael harrington who was the originally in the socialist party um up until 1972 um and then he formed the uh, democratic socialists of america which is not a really a political party. It's a it's a socialist organization, but it's not really that socialist because they've ended up being the left wing of realism, uh, 
uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, uh, he's um, they've 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 supported Walter Mondale. They've supported Jesse Jackson. They've supported uh, you know Gore and Kerry and. Um, and then they split, I think, in, in the 2000 election between uh, Ralph Nader, uh, the Green Party guy, and uh, Dave McReynolds of the Socialist Party, and then John John Kerry. Well, not John Kerry, but Al Gore. So, um, and the media and the press, uh, it's like everybody's afraid to do anything too strong is, I guess, my point. And you only you end up with a lesser of two evils, okay? And by doing that, you solidify a economic system that does what you just addressed, Neil, and that is all the hardship and the suffering and the deaths uh, that come about from this this flagrant. Uh, system that doesn't work for the majority of Americans. It works for the privileged. It works for the wealthy. It works for uh, the p- people in power and the even the interest groups on the left. Some of them, you know, they'll they'll support uh, a candidate um, when um, you know it may not be the right thing to do, only because it's the party that they want uh, to to retain the power. So I think we've lost our sense of um, I don't know where the where where does this courage come from? Where's the profiling courage? Not only within the Republicans during the Mueller uh, hearings and the and the impeachment hearings, but where is the profiling courage of of the politicians regarding our economic system? Uh, I don't see. Uh, I, I don't see Bernie Sanders being the true socialist that he should be, and and that's why I'm critis- critical of him. You know, he's going to try his best, but then, you know, jump in with everybody else, and he should be out there, uh, you know, saying that no, he won't cooperate with the system, he won't cooperate with the party. You know, it's you've got to make these changes, and and. I think his message is good in the sense that uh, a, a revolution is at hand. You know, we need we need to address the, the concerns of the younger people. But when push comes to shove, whether it's the politicians or the media, they fold. They fold, and everybody folds in our society. And except, I think, people that have to speak up and people that want to stand up for principle and advocate for what they believe in, even though it seems like is a dark tunnel ahead. I, I, it's got to be because change has come about historically in, in, our, in our world. It's come about maybe like what you said, if you, don't, if you don't address the needs of your people, they'll get up in arms, and revolutions occur violently, and they occur nonviolently too. Uh, so... Um, but I put out a uh, a news release or a opinion piece a couple of days ago, and I urged uh, the Congress or uh, the cabinet to remove President Trump. Then that's the 25th Amendment of the United States that 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 they can re- remove the president of the United States and turn to the uh, you know the line of succession. Uh, turn it over to uh, the vice president or 
uh, in, from my perspective, he's just as bad as the president, so they're both culpable and both should be removed. Turn it over to the Speaker of the House. Well, that's Nancy Pelosi, and she's a Democrat. Well, get Pelosi to agree to it uh, to in order to be conciliatory toward the Republicans and say, I won't accept it, but we'll let the Senate pro tem uh, Charles uh, Grassley, uh, the Republican senator from Iowa, who's next in line. And if he doesn't want it, then you have Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Now, those people are unacceptable to me. But at the moment, at the moment, we do have to be practical. The country is in danger. It's in danger health-wise and economic. uh, And this guy, you know, is just... uh, off the wall. And yet I don't see, and I'm, I'm calling upon some courage and some some strength on the part of the establishment. The establishment are the, are the only peoples that can make this change. And if they don't, I think is what's going to occur is what you've alluded to, Neil, and that is a, a much more dangerous proposition. Yeah, and I don't think that they recognize that that's going to be a situation that they're going to create. It's going to be blamed on – I that's the funny thing is that's like what they'll always do. But the left will blame Bernie and the right will blame Bernie. If it comes down to that, it's going to be because that Bernie Sanders guy, that evil socialist, was, you know, showed up and put all these terrible ideas in the, eyes, you know, in the heads of the kids. You know, but yeah. the other thing that I'm starting to notice slowly is that some of the smarter among the Trump supporters are beginning to take another look and go, man – he mm-hmm. kind of screwed the pooch on this COVID virus thing, you know, and now mm-hmm. he's talking about, well, well you know, we got to have the economy. So maybe we should just, we're just going to turn everything on in April, regardless of what the health officials say. You know, nobody's mm-hmm. really considering what that means. You know, the, the few that are, I'm starting to notice they're just, they're getting a little quieter. They're getting a little quieter. You know, that's when that, that's when the gears are turning and burning. But unfortunately, because so much of what goes on in politics, and this is not just on the right, this is on the left too is is almost religious you know like they they totally give up any rational Mm -hmm. thought it just becomes about their emotional attachments to it you know i know Mm -hmm. a lot of people for example that are republicans because they were raised that way you know i have a friend of mine um and it's it's actually kind of funny to talk to him about politics because you know to give you an idea just how republican his family is when I came to visit him once, his, you know, he's, he's an older guy, so his, his mom was you know, like a nice, sweet old lady. You know, but this is how Republican they were. As a gift, she gave me a book written by George Bush. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> wow. You know, if you can imagine going to go visit your friend and then, you know, here you are, sweet, oh dear, you should read this. You know, it's like she thought she was doing something nice for me. You know, and I and I took it, and obviously I wasn't going to read a book about you know written by George Bush. But the the point is, is that that's how Republican he was. Now, let's get into how much more weird this is. Is that he's gay, like you know he's he's a gay guy, and and he ends up being a Republican, and and because of like his upbringing, despite the fact that obviously he still thinks you know he's come to the conclusion that it's fine to be gay, he ended up being anti-gay mm-hmm. marriage because that's how he was raised, you know, and then even more contradictions came out with this kind of brainwashing because in addition to that, he also was against Obamacare. Okay. So the reason this becomes relevant is that he got cancer and like I ended up having to take care of him because he didn't have anywhere else to go. And I don't mind doing that. He was a good friend and I would do it again. The, the point is, is that he um, got cancer. And if it was not for the Obamacare expansion, he would have died. 
because that's what made him eligible for Medicaid. And right. he is in such mm-hmm. denial about this that, like, he even went to so far to say, well, no, it wasn't Obama who did that for me. It was Governor Snyder, you know, the Republican governor of Michigan who poisoned the people mm-hmm. of Flint. And I'm like, no, that's not what happened. And even one of my other conservative friends who was there with me went, no, Jim, that, that's not what happened. This is Obamacare is the reason that you were eligible for Medicaid. The only thing Governor Snyder did was go ahead and mm-hmm. activate it in his state, you know, and he's still in denial of it to this day. And then now, of course, he's got a really nice factory job. I mean, I have no idea how he's doing with the epidemic, but now that he's got a nice factory job and he's cruising his way into the middle class, he's talking about, yeah, you know, I hate all communism and, you know, like it's terrible. I mean, you know, we don't need that universal health care. And I said, so, Jim, are you going to stand by your principles and mail a check to the state of Michigan for your cancer treatment? He's like, uh, well, I, you know, I'm like, no, no, come on, come on. He's like, well, no, I mean, I'm not like everybody else. I got off of it as soon as I could. I'm like, Jim, that's not what I asked, dude. You are alive because of that, period. And since you're right, it's terrible. It's an evil handout. And anybody who takes advantage of it is bad. Are you going to mail a check to the state of Michigan to get a re, you know, to refund them for your cancer treatment? And of course he wasn't going to do that. You know, because but he's so lost in that. And I've seen people on the left like the left has its own problems, like the the social justice movement is slowly like dividing and conquering the left. Like I remember because I was part of Occupy Detroit and Occupy Flint, and there were some very distinct differences between those two camps. And the Mm -hmm. the the main difference was this Occupy Detroit got infiltrated by extreme feminists, extreme racial activists. And what ended up happening is I just watched as it went from being a beautiful, unified, anti-corporatist, you know, um, group of people who were all working together to suddenly it's, well, you're a white male, so you're not going to be allowed to talk at this gathering. You have to sit there and listen. You know, it, it became about like an oppression Olympics. Well, this person is a trans you know, um, you know, gay, uh, black or Hispanic person. So, you know, they're the most oppressed. So they, their views on issues are actually more important than yours. And I just mm-hmm. watched as this completely destroyed Occupy Detroit as far as its ability to coalesce and work together. Meanwhile, you mm-hmm. go to Occupy Flint. It was very diverse. Everybody got along. And we didn't even talk about that stuff. Like it was seamless, you know, there were black people, Hispanic people, and just it was just as diverse as Detroit, but we didn't have that social justice stuff going on. So we were so much, the camp was so much better. Like we worked together much better. Like we, we built our shelters so much faster than anything I saw happen at Occupy Detroit because we weren't spending the whole time trying to analyze everybody according to their race and their gender and their sexual preferences, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying that those things are not important. It's just that we've come to a point where they've become more important than any form of, you know, like unified purpose. And meanwhile, our opposition mm-hmm. is completely organized. You know, that's the point that I brought up when it came to progressives. I actually had a show and unfortunately I, I got cut off in the middle of it. I'm going to have to do it again, but I still got a lot of good points out. But what I'm watching is, is that the progressive side of the Democratic ticket is tearing itself to pieces. That the supporters mm-hmm. who supported Tulsi Gabbard and the supporters who supported Andrew Yang refuse to get behind Bernie Sanders. They, you know, and they, 
in the Elizabeth Warren debacle that happened, which I'm honestly kind of of the opinion now that she was just controlled mm-hmm. opposition to make sure that Bernie didn't get more of the delegates, you know, but, you know, she was a corporatist anyway. But the, the, the point is, is that the, the left, the progressive left was not unified. And then you have Super Tuesday where the centrists and the corporate Democrats, they were unified. And, and that's why we're in the situation that we're in. You know, there's been so many over the years, so many histories of, of revolutions that were put down by division amongst their people. And this was an excellent example of that. Like, you know, you watch the movie Braveheart about William Wallace, like his reason that he couldn't overthrow tyranny was because everybody was fighting each other. You know, uh, uh, Cherokee chief Crazy Horse ran into the same problem when he was trying to, you know, to trying to fight the, the U.S. Army. And, you know, prevent them from taking over all the Sioux's land was that all the Sioux were fighting each other over it, you know, and these kinds of oppositions, I sometimes I think they're socially engineered. Like, I literally think somebody got involved, realized that this would be the best way to keep the poor from uniting. That's the same thing from the also from the poor on the right and the left. You know, that's an obvious Mm -hmm. division. You know, that's how we end up with situations like the poor, you know, white trash, which I'm one of, by the way, obviously, who live in the trailer parks, you know, and they're basically ghettos too. And I'm not currently living in a trailer, thankfully, but still, you know, and then the, the, the poor blacks and Hispanics in the ghetto don't recognize they're in the same situation, you know, that, that they have so much more in common than that they don't. Yet some of them end up in the Tea Party and some of them end up in the Occupy movement and then they hate each other. Meanwhile, <laughs> you know, like George Carlin said, but, so they can keep going to the bank differences i'll actually play that at the as the last clip of the day for sure you know that we concentrate so much on our differences you know um so well uh, uh go ahead well you, you you know you began this i think when you talked about uh cult and about how uh, the groups uh to the left and to the right are form their own cults and they won't uh, help other people and then what we get into is this element of fear, uh, fear of the other guy or even people within our own uh, organization. And then they're dependent on political correctness, which can be at fault at times as well. And um, and then, uh, you know, the, the, we talked about the, the, the Red Scare and the, the fear politics of fear. And I, let me address, let me go to the root of a, what our discussion started off with and i think it's, it'll come around to what you just addressed and that is socialism versus um, communism as opposed to socialism versus capitalism people sure. fear socialism as being communism you know and they see it as a uh, it, all the power being uh, in uh, in the state and it's centralized in a politburo of people at the top and uh, they make decisions, and it trickles down to the to the people. Just like capitalism has decision makers at the top, it's almost like there's a, an analogy there between communism and, and capitalism. Although I guess right. capital communism tends to be more authoritarian and less of an emphasis on liberty and and freedom than on on capitalism. But even that can be debated. But um, my point is, is that there's there's several types of socialism. There's a centralized socialism, but there's a decentralized socialism, and that's the one that I really want to advocate for. And I think 
that it would be more acceptable to Americans of an economic system where the power and the authority is vested in owning the the companies by the workers or that the cooperatives uh, own the the product or the service or they manufacture the goods, okay, and they control, they make the decisions in a democratic way about how to spend the money and what will be the salary levels. Uh, I mean, right now, you know, you have Alex Rodriguez and um, uh, who's the guy, uh, Tom Brady now, they're making $25 million a year. I guess Alex is retired now, but Brady just just got uh, signed by uh, Tampa Bay, where I live, um, and they're going to pay him $25 million a year. Um, and I think that's, you know, horrible. I think that uh, under a socialist system, they might, you know, allow them, or the, you know, the power would be vested in the in the football players and in a form of a co-op or in the form of a, uh, a community-owned uh, uh, sport. And they would set the uh, the salary levels, and then maybe he would get, uh, you know, $3 million a year. But that would ripple down through and that all the other players – and the people and the football players that retired prior to 1992 might get some health benefits, and uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and also that the tickets would cost less, and that we would have a more fairer society where all the people could participate and enjoy sports instead of you have to have 200 to 300 dollars to go to a baseball game or a football game or the super bowl you have to have a couple thousand dollars under the capitalist system so again it's only the privileged or the wealthy or the people that are well off that benefit from a society that we exist in now and they fear losing their power they fear losing their their wealth they fear losing they they fear the other guy and as a result they begin to criticize the people on welfare as being lazy and no good and uh, you know not wanting to to work and and so forth so i i just want to emphasize that socialism is not a centralized government where they take away people's second car or their clothes, uh, but that they really do give authority to the citizens to make decisions on whether a product benefits society or if it's danger. You know, are fossil fuels danger to the environment? You know, you know, are uh, is nuclear energy uh, dangerous to the health and welfare of our society? And if so, then you 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 create an alternative power source and you get rid of the the product or the service that doesn't benefit the common good but under capitalism now you know it, it the common good and the general welfare and uh, what's fair to most people is not the priority but i think that socialism can achieve that that mindset and show americans that it is a much fairer equitable, egalitarian, democratic system. And it does promote democracy better. It even protects liberty and freedoms. And you can have freedom. Oh, there's a lot of innovation made. Let me give you an example. of uh, The Panama Canal, uh, the, the French tried to build it in 1888 with De Lesseps. 
and they couldn't do it. It was the private sector. They tried to raise all the money and everything, and they got to work on it, but they couldn't do it. So in comes Teddy Roosevelt and the American government, and they buy uh, Panama uh, from, or, or they steal Panama from Colombia. And uh, <laughs> but they, what they did is it was a totally government-run entity on the part of America. It was uh, they, the, it was the federal government without the private sector that came in and provided housing and jobs and recreation and health care and education, and everything was government-run. And I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Panama from 1969 to 72. So I saw uh, the, the results of that uh Right before we turned over the canal to the Panamanian government, um, it was uh, the only discrepancy in the Panama Canal. And it, what I'm point is, it was a socialist effort by the American government. The only negative point was that you had the gold line and the silver line. Okay, the gold line I think was for uh, um, Americans, and the silver line was for uh, everybody else, which were basically black. And the Americans were white. So you had bias and discrimination, which I don't justify and can't justify. But that was the only uh, uh, error amongst everything else. And it was a good example of what uh, the federal government can do when it's organized and has the money and the wherewithal and to, to administer it. And, uh, you know, I just heard this morning, um, I have to compliment the uh, go the governor of New York, uh, um, what was his name? Uh, anyway, he was saying, you know, we need, you know, 40,000 ventilators, and the only body people that can do it is the federal government. You know, get the federal government to get the – order the private sector to do it and do it in the next 21 days and pay them the money, give them premium prices, you know. I mean, that's the mindset, though, of – of where uh, a, a socialist uh, system will benefit more people, okay? And Tom Brady will still be a star, and he'll still get a lot of money, a lot more money than everybody else, but he won't be getting $25 million. Sure. So so anyway, so uh, I don't know, cult, fear, red scare. Uh, I don't want to scare people with, with the idea that socialism is going to you know, take away uh, their freedoms and their rights and their 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 possessions. It's going to give them, I think, much more freedom and much more fairness, and I think even a better com compensatory life. You know, they'll 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 make a fair salary and uh, and pay taxes uh, and share the taxes, but will will be will benefit. You know, I mean. Uh, well, I think anyway. that one of the, the problems that people will have is that they, they have a reason to mistrust their government. And the reason why is because we live in a system that's essentially a plutocracy, that our government is entirely paid for by the wealthy and controlled by the wealthy. Um, and then you, you, you put that system on top of the fact that we also have this party system that mm -hmm. is yeah. totally in control of everything. You know, so they've never Neil, experienced the a direct Neil, democratic system. Neil, the Go government ahead. is is the private sector. That's who the government is, and that they are also the legislature. Since they own all the Democrats and Republicans, they set the policies as well. So our government is really corporate America. 
And and the yep, Supreme Court sense. affirmed it with its yeah with its, excuse me for interrupting but just wanted no, to you're get fine. that point in there. No, you're fine. That that's that's what this is. It's an open conversation. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. That makes perfect sense. But that's what I'm getting is that they don't they've never even experienced what a truly democratic government would look like. They don't they don't know what that even is like. You know, we get pieces of it. Um, you know, when I worked for Senator Gravel, he wanted to see a constitutional amendment that would allow for democratic referendums. Um, you know, so that if the people of the country have decided that they need to change something, that they can just do it on their own. And and it's it's done a lot of good. And not all of it is good, mind you. I mean, like Proposition mm-hmm. 8 in California, in California was a problem for gay marriage for a while. But, you know, we legalized recreational marijuana in the state of Michigan by referendum. You know, it certainly wasn't going to happen through the legislature. Uh, but also mm-hmm. the other thing that would make a big difference would be if you have a system like that, you can recall politicians. You can force them to have to run for election again. You know, you could you could fire them. I mean, like if you have a yeah. direct, direct democracy system, then oh, everybody brother. behaves better. And if you, you, you go to Europe, <laughs> well, yeah, in Europe, they, they already have that ability. You know, and there's other things mm-hmm. about it, too. Like in Switzerland, if you want to take the, the people of Switzerland to, to war, you have to have a referendum. As in that's the only way to make it happen. There is no like one person sort of like responding to direct aggression, obviously, who can just take the country of Switzerland to war. There's no one guy. There's no president, you know, over there that can just decide, okay, we're going to mobilize all of our military. It has to be a referendum or there will be no war. And then you don't end Mm -hmm. up in these ridiculous situations like George Bush. I think his approval rating rating at one point dropped to like 28 percent. You know, if you've got a guy who's down at 28 percent, fire him. You know, but we don't have that opportunity. We have to just sit there and deal with it. So then we end up right. in these situations where our representatives basically are only beholden to us, you know, every election year. And then the rest of the time, they just go back to just being who they were, you know, and, and essentially just representing, you know, who, whoever it is who pays for their campaign contributions or whoever it is even worse is going to give them a job when they go to the private sector after they get out of the government, you know, but. Now, there was something else that I frequently have quoted from my conversations with you, and I was hoping we could go, again, go over it again for especially the progressives in our audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that we came up with a pretty good analogy for it when I said that it's basically like it was a marriage that became an abusive marriage where the wife is getting beat up and told to shut up and accept whatever because you got nowhere else to go. And that's the marriage of the, the Democrats of old with the Socialist Workers Party, you know, could you tell that story again for my my audience? Boy, I'm you got to refresh my memory more than that. I I, I don't okay. remember what you're <laughs> alluding to. One now. of the things that you said when I brought you on as a presidential candidate to talk to you was you pointed out, have you ever considered? You know, I thought it was interesting that they kept calling you know, they constantly called Democrats socialists because that was a big thing with Obama. Everybody was calling him a socialist in 2008. And right, I was right. like, well, yeah, that is kind of funny. He's like, well, you, you meaning you, not he, you know, you were like, well, um, well, the reason why they do that is because the Socialist Workers Party used to have a lot more power and influence and that in order for the Democrats to get voter, voters allegiance, they had to adopt a bunch of socialist policies. Do you remember what I'm talking about now? 
I'm sorry. I, I you know, maybe it was the another guy. <laughs> Either that or it's a senior moment on my part. <laughs> it's okay. But you're familiar with what I'm talking about though, right? Just in that basically yeah, there course. used to be yeah. a much more powerful socialist movement in the United States and that basically that, you know, that that's where we're at now is that the the progressives essentially are being treated like, you know, well, you don't have anywhere else to go, you know, so we're just going to beat you up. You know, we'll right. pay lip service to letting your candidates run. But really, we had fully intended for you to only vote for Biden or Clinton or Obama or whichever corporate mm-hmm. whore, you know, that we've crowned and coronated, you know, and that they're not keeping up their side of that covenant. You know, right. whatever well, agreements the, they made with the socialists have basically gone away. Go ahead. The socialists were in their heyday in the 1890s and the early 1900s. I mean, the. Uh, Eugene Debs was the, pre- the candidate for the Socialist Party, and and they got uh, he got I think nine percent of the vote in uh, in 1912 when um, and he ran against Teddy Roosevelt who was also a third party candidate, um, and uh, so there were a lot of congressmen and mayors that were socialists in uh, in the in America's history during that time, and then they advocated things like women's suffrage. Social Security, workers' compensation, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, uh, collective bargaining for the for unions, uh, age limited uh, age for for labor, all these points that were the socialist points that were implemented by uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s through the New Deal. So they, you know, they accused uh, Roosevelt of being a, a socialist. Well, he implemented the ideas of the socialists, but he also adhered to the, the capitalist system and the free market systems. But um, it was the socialists who influenced the Democrats. It made the Democrats what they are today, based on the the, the history of the 30s and the 40s. So uh, it's. Um, I think they that's forget basically the conversation we had before. So you remembered. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, you know, there were people like Albert Einstein, Helen Keller, Sinclair Lewis, uh, Mark Twain, Oscar Wilde, uh, Bertrand Russell. Uh, you know, all these people: George Orwell, uh, Martin Luther King, Pablo Picasso. They were all socialists. They believed in socialism. All right. These were credible. Reputable, uh, famous people in our society, and then when um, when the uh, the Red Scare came along after World War II, and uh, communism, you know, and uh, and you know Ronald Reagan, he was a Democrat, and then he was a union organizer, and then he turned Republican, and he turned in half of his uh, Democratic colleagues, uh, and that's where I think a lot of the the Red Scare. Uh, started again or came into being of course you had hoover the um, the fbi guy that had promoted that i think even in the 20s and 30s and, and 40s but um you have a lot of reputable people in our society that were socialists and then they got they they had to flee the country in many ways or some of them went to jail over their belief in an in an ideology and a, and a political philosophy and um and yet our country, we have public ownership of fire departments, police departments, railroads. Uh, we offer Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare. Our schools are all public institutions, our post office, our military. I mean, why, you know, I wish that uh, 
Bernie Sanders would would uh, urge the, uh, uh, the nationalization of the military as opposed to having 700 uh, uh, bases around the world. You know that the, one of the Dakotas uh, uh, has a state-run banking system. You know, so I, I have no problems with nationalizing the financial institutions in our country, the banks, the Federal Reserve. That should all be controlled by the, the citizens and the people and the communities. And it can be done if you have a national system where it's centralized. That's where centralization is important. But you have a a, a committee of citizens and uh, tax experts and consumers who set the policy for the banks and set the policy for the Federal Reserve, okay? You just don't have these uh, wealthy billionaires uh, or the elite that sit on the board that make the decisions. So that's where, uh, where again, uh, socialism will benefit our society in a much better way and a less threatening way also. it's I think it's much more acceptable and and tolerable and understandable uh, if you if you look at it from that perspective. Well, yeah, and I think that that was kind of that comes back to why I said that, that people have no reason to, they have every reason to be afraid of their government because time and time again we haven't been getting our candidates are not giving us you know what they're supposed to, and that's why the establishment mm-hmm. fears people like Bernie Sanders. But it wasn't just him either. I mean, like they when when I point out what happens to Bernie on the part of the DNC, the, my Republican friends will be quick to go, well, that's just the corruption of the DNC. And I'm like, well, you know, uh, <laughs> the establishment didn't want Donald Trump either. They, they didn't want him at all, but they didn't have any choice because he was willing to run third party. And if he had the libertarian party would have been there waiting <laughs> to go. Yeah, yeah, let's get this guy, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and then Hillary Clinton would have won for sure. You know, and that's why they were afraid. And so they backed off and they went, OK, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll bring you into the fold, you know. Um, but also even before that, you know, then you have Congressman Ron Paul in 2008. You know, he was an anti-war again, libertarian minded, and they couldn't have that. They needed to get rid of him as fast as possible. You know, right, and, right. and that because the guy like that who's up, you know, telling the truth about our foreign policy, you know, um, you know, we can't have you can't be having that, you know, so. It's that system. That's why when I I tell people this all the time in my show, I say the establishment, like the party beneath the parties, like the, you know, and I put it in quotes. It's like, you know, and the the analogy I tend to give is that so Bill Clinton and George Bush, you know, run against each other and, you know, you hear them debating and attacking each other on stage. And then you see pictures of them playing golf together, you know. It, it, it's this, they're, they're not as in opposition as you think. And then there's pictures of Donald Trump and Hillary and, and Bill all hanging out. You know, it's, mm-hmm. there, there's, a, there's an element to all of this that people don't think about. And then we essentially get divided up. You know, that's another political phenomenon that I bring up frequently is like, have you ever noticed that our politics are packaged? Like we're given these packages that we're supposed to follow. So, for example, I'm pro-gun rights. You know, there's a gun like less than five feet from me right now. I believe that people should have the right to own guns. So then if you start talking mm-hmm. about that on social media, they go, well, you Republicans and you're I'm like, I'm not a Republican, you know, but but what else are they going to assume? You know, but then I'll say, you know, universal health care. They'll be like, well, you Democrats. And I'm like, I'm not a Democrat. Where, where do I fit? You know, uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah. I, I don't I don't have a party because I'm myself, you know, and it all comes back to something that. 
George Washington said in his farewell address when he said that I'm very wary of the party system because it was just coming into power right as he was leaving office. He said Mm -hmm. that I'm concerned that the parties will do what is best for the parties and not for what's best for the country. And he was absolutely right. And he was the, the only non-partied president, the only independent president in the history of the United States. And, you know, there's a reason for that, you know, is that ever since afterwards, the parties have fought each other. There was a time when there were three, I think that there was because the Whigs was actually mm-hmm. a, a relevant party at one time, and then that mm-hmm. didn't last. Um, you know, so I guess this might be a good time to kind of segue a little bit into what you do on your blog. Now, your blog is called um, the the what the two party what was it again? I'm sorry. Two 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 party tyranny dot org. Right. I have that. By the way, to any of you who are listening, if you don't have time to write that down, it's listed in the description of this broadcast. Um, you know, a link to, to Brian's blog. So what kind of content that can they expect when they go to your blog? Oh man, just, uh, you know, recently it's been about, you know, the socialists and the, and the capitalists and the, uh, the virus. Uh, but before that, you know, I addressed everything from the, uh, I'm, I'm Irish descent. Okay. All four of my grandparents came from Ireland and I went over to Ireland in March of last year and I went to the uh, the border, uh, and uh, you know Brexit is right and still going on, and it was in its heyday even then. And um, uh, they were negotiating, and I went to these what they called soft borders in Ireland, where there's no military guards, there's no obstruction, there's no fence or door. You can come and go freely, and uh, that that. That was allowed under because England was part of the European Union. Uh, Twenty years prior to that, there were the troubles and the violence, and because Southern Ireland wanted to make Northern Ireland part of its country to, to unify it, uh, Northern Ireland is still part of the of, of the English of the Great Britain. So um, now that uh, England has voted to uh, get out of the European Union. Does Northern uh, Ireland go with them and lose the European Union and all the economic benefits, which they don't want to happen? So the question is, will they reinstall a hard border? Anyway, I addressed that issue. Uh, I also talked about, um, you know, the the Charlottesville uh, uh, shootings and violence that occurred in uh, down in Virginia. Uh, sure. In August, I think of 2017, was it or so? Um, my point was is that uh, the right wing. Uh, they said Trump said uh, he just made a terrible statement. He said that there were good people on both sides, and everybody went crazy, uh, including the press and the media. I I thought he was misinterpreted, misunderstood, because I thought he meant that. Uh, people who were protesting the right wing were there, but people on the uh, uh, that were there with the right wing, they were there to promote the Confederate cause, okay, and their right to still have Confederate statues or, or the Confederate flag or whatever. You know, there are a lot of people who legitimately feel historically that uh, that they should still have statues and things like that. So. I thought that there were people from churches and 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 people in in suits and ties and things like that. 
But people, I think, thought that Trump said there were good people on on the part of these anti-Semites and these uh, anti-black people and these white supremacists. I don't think that was the case. But anyway, I wrote a, 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 a blog on it. And I said that the right, the organizers of the right wing went through the government. They registered um, with the city government for the right to assembly and to speak uh, of their opposition to the removal of the Confederate statues. The left wing did not register, and they did not have a right to be there. And compounding the problem was was that the mayor and the governor got this democratic governor uh who's on tv all the time and uh, telling sanders he should get out and he's a threat to the democratic party what's his name now do you remember his name the go- former governor uh, terry terry mcauliffe i think i'm not anyway, familiar but go ahead and they 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 set the policy to allow the the demonstrators and the anti uh, demonstrators to confront each other and they had the they moved the police out, whereas they should have been a thousand feet or a mile separated from each other. If if they the left wing didn't even have a permit to be there. So as a social as a civil libertarian, I support everybody's right to free speech and everybody's right to assemble, even if I don't agree with them, which I didn't agree with a lot of their issues. And so I addressed that issue, and then I wrote another blog. Uh, and uh, there was a subsequent uh, investigation called for by the Virginia government and the Charleston mayor, and it was an independent U.S. attorney that concluded that the that city government and the state government were at fault for not uh, separating the two groups and for allowing the left group to do what what it what it which should not have done and they they permitted that they they had the police separate and so forth he really castigated them i felt vindicated in the sense of uh when this independent investigation and conclusion came out but subsequent to that the, the kid who drove the car that killed the woman the 21 year old i think he was 20 at the time uh, you know i went into that and did some research and um the guy was not a white supremacist. It was like within the last 12 months, uh, I think basically teenagers' mindset is not formed until you're 24, 25 years old. And uh, I think he was taken in by the propaganda. And the left used it as, oh, here's this this right-winger, you know. And I think he was just a innocent kid that went the wrong way. He got scared, and he saw all the people fighting and coming at him, and I guess he put his foot on the, the gas pedal, and he hit a truck in front of him, and it was the truck that was rammed into the lady that was killed, and that was terrible. And he should have, be held, should, should have been held accountable, which he was. But they put him away for life. And I don't think – I think that there's there was some injustice in that – in that uh, it was like, you know, I just felt it was an injustice as the way it was handled and who was at fault, and there was no consideration of the the mental health of the kid. Uh, and that's true of other shootings, uh, both black and white in our societies, that uh, and these mass shootings where the mental health of the shooter 
is never hardly taken into consideration, and they just, you know, string them up. So that was another issue. So, and I've addressed different other. <laughs> that was no, a long interesting topic to, to cover, actually. Um, and I, I think but, that but, Neil, here's my point. Go ahead. I put myself. I exposed myself for criticism because I was trying to stand up for principle and for what I thought was fair and right, even though it wasn't popular and it wasn't politically correct. And uh, But I think you have to do that in our society because there's so much pressure to go with the to go with the, the majority, okay, to go with popular opinion. I don't know whether there's something element in our society where – this is a real danger here. The, the media and the press, I mean, even recently, you know, CNN, they, they hired uh, this guy Gillum, uh, the candidate, the Democratic candidate for governor. He was uh, a pundit for them for the last six months after he lost to um, um, DeSantis, who's the governor right now. And he was, uh, Gillum was a young black uh, uh charismatic guy at the age of 39 but he was under investigation by the fbi for whatever went on in the tallahassee government uh when he was a city councilman and mayor the previous 10 years there was a second investigation came up so i sent i put out a news release or opinion piece and i said i urged gillum to to uh, you know back to withdraw from the democratic primary there were like six or eight other candidates because of he was under the cloud of an investigation and we would never know the outcome by the time of the election but he stayed in and he upset everybody probably because there were so many candidates he beat the established candidates and I said it again, and then this time the newspapers, many of them, endorsed Gillum, despite the fact that they knew he was being treated with kid gloves, and they didn't. They they made reference to the investigation, but they didn't take it seriously enough. And I was critical of them, okay, and it made me look like I was anti-black or something, but I wasn't. <laughs> I was trying to, you know, I have to admit something else. I was also supporting a third-party candidate in the race, okay. So sure. I had a, a dog in the fight, okay, uh, but but I still believed essentially in in um, in calling the a, a square a square, okay, and that is is that you got to voice these opinions, and if people you got to raise them and let the public know, you have to have that sunlight in and let everybody know. So here we go, the the election's over, Gillum loses. Uh, DeSantis wins, and then what do you get, uh, you know, a year later? You know, Gillum is caught in a hotel room at 1 a.m. in the morning with a uh, a male escort, uh, and there's method, methadine or methadone or something all over the bed and the floor and human uh, liquids all over the floor, and Gillum is so drunk that the police can't even get uh, a description out of him. And then they decide not to do an investigation. They let him go home. So my question is, <laughs> is that privilege treatment? Did the newspapers give him privilege treatment? Did the Democratic Party give him privilege treatment? Did CNN give him – and Smirconish and all these other people in the, in the, in the media 
you know, where the hell were they? Who is to stand up? Why are they hiring this guy and give him thousands of dollars after the fact? And he was subject to another in investigation by the FBI after his campaign in 2018. So there was a third FBI investigation, yet CNN hired him. I don't, I don't understand that. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's fair to the people. I think it sends, it sends the wrong message, and yet the Democratic Party turns a blind eye to it. Okay, he was the hero, you know, and it was the darn dirty FBI. I mean, I, I hated the FBI when I was an anti and have been an anti-war activist. But, but you know, let's call it what it is. Is my philosophy okay? And there's not enough of that in our society. Yeah, and I would say that the. Um, the left in general has had problems lately with the fact that we can't have that discourse. You know, um, I mean, the right already had that problem, but now both sides have that problem. You know, that's why yeah. we have situations like you don't agree with Ben Shapiro. So let's pull a fire alarm, you know, to get everybody to have to leave his you know, presentation he's doing at a college somewhere because you mm -hmm. can't debate the guy, you know, or, you know, you don't like Ann Coulter or you don't like, you know, and I don't like most of these people either. Honestly, the, the, the point is, though, is, is that the left, especially when you talk about like, that's another part of the problem here is that a good deal of communism and socialism's reputation is coming from people's impressions of groups like Antifa and Antifa was deeply rooted in all of that stuff you were bringing up in Charlottesville. Right. And the, the violence Antifa was, was going the left. on. And they right. tolerated and like, it and supported it, and they never defended. They never uh, prote they protected them. They didn't criticize them. Right. You know, they were and, part and of the violence. It's not like anybody they, can I say think, that you. I think they started not, the violence. That's what I think. Well, and it, it wouldn't surprise me. And it, it, they they do that kind of thing all the time. And I remember back to Occupy Detroit, like before. Um, like they've been around for longer than I think people believe. But like we would go and do peaceful marches for Occupy Detroit. And there'd be this group of jackasses all wearing black masks and they would do stuff like throw bricks into windows and things like that. And right. then Occupy Detroit would get blamed for it. And right. nobody liked right. them. You know, they, they mm -hmm. were like, what are you guys doing? Stop. You know, because mm -hmm. we were trying to do like civil disobedience, Martin Luther King style. And, and they weren't on board with that. And it's because they want to destroy, you know, society as a whole, thinking that they're going to have their, their, their communist revolution and I just, it's like, that's, that's the problem. It, you know, it's, it's the same thing with, um, you know, there are certainly extremist feminists right now that don't speak for all feminists, but nobody's saying anything about it. They're not, they're not calling them out. You know, when they say stuff, right. that's just crazy. And the same thing is true of activists involved with racial stuff. It's like, there, there's this, you know, crazy fringe element that's going on right now. It, it doesn't surprise me at all if somebody would try to call you racist just because of that situation. But I seem to recall that your running mate was a black gentleman in 2008, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Stewart. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, Alexander just Stewart. <laughs> right. And I, I'm just like, you guys, it's it, it, they're now to the, it actually, um, I think I know what I'll end up adding to my little voice clips is that there was a, a rant by, uh, the guy plays a character named Jonathan Pye. Jonathan Pye is basically meant to be like a parody kind of like um, character that is, this is a, a guy who works for the mainstream media who every now and then gets caught on a hot mic, you know, saying what he really believes. And he gave this huge rant when Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election. And one of the things that he said that I felt it helps, it, it hit so home with me was that he said that the left has lost the art of debate. Like, you know, he says, we just mm -hmm. basically, 
piss and moan and yell at everybody, you know, and then just so that they'll be quiet and stop arguing with us. But then it's different when they're alone in the voting booth, you know, Mm -hmm. then they're all of a sudden, you know, they're like, well, I'll just pick Trump. Like they're going to throw a Molotov cocktail at the system. It's like, you know, they said he, and he pointed out, not everybody who voted for Trump was a racist or a sexist or a homophobe. He's like, you know, until you guys confront that about yourself, you're just going to keep losing to people like Hillary Clinton, you know, I'm sorry, like, like Donald Trump, you know, um, you know, it, you can't have it, it basically. And, and unfortunately, the left did not learn its lesson in 2016. It doubled down, you know, and mm-hmm. it's and that's not going to work any better this time. You know, if anything, it's going to be worse. At least Hillary Clinton can make an attempt to to be coherent in debates. Donald Trump is going to make, you know, Joe Biden his prison bitch on stage. I mean, it's going to be terrible. I mean, I hate to use terms like that, but that's the point. He's just going to be so bad. It's not the funny thing is, is and it's hard for me to tell that people this because I have my political analyst mind that I used when I was working for Senator Gravel's campaign. And then I have my preferences. Well, aside from my preferences, it works something like this. Donald Trump's whole game is making fun of people. That's how he defeated all of these people, including Jeb Bush, who was the nominee before that yeah, whole thing I remember even started. That, yeah. And yep. he made Jeb Bush look like an idiot. And it works. So now mm. you're going to hand him Joe Biden, you know, <laughs> a guy that, you know, just is just begging to be made fun of, you know, and right. he's going to say a lot of things that are cruel and out of bounds. But that doesn't that never sticks to Trump. He can do that all day. You know, whereas I mean, in, aside again from preferences. Even Pete Buttigieg or one of these lower tier candidates would have been a better choice if their whole concern mm-hmm. is defeating Trump, you know, because at least mm-hmm. Pete, you know, Pete Buttigieg, he sounded like a plastic candidate just like everybody else, but he could at Boy, least sure do did. pretty well. And, you know, but he could still debate. I mean, like when he tore into Amy Klaubachar, I was like, wow, he's, he's really roughing her up, you know, and <laughs> she sounded terrible, too. I was like, oh, my God. You know, it's like somebody made the comparison. Actually, this is the story I said. So Amy Klobuchar. So imagine that. Hillary Clinton is the movie and Amy Klobuchar is then the, the bad knockoff TV show (laughs) that comes about, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you have Amy Klobuchar, but even that, you know, either of those candidates would have done a better job. You know, Bernie Sanders, if Trump tried to make fun of him, he had to be able to despire right back and he'd be able to hit him. But, you know, part of the reason why Bernie is debating the way that he is is because he got blamed for 2016 too. And, you know, so he doesn't want to beat up on the other Democrats too hard because at the end of the day, he still doesn't want Trump to win the reelection. So it's not in his best interest just to sit there and go for the throat. And, and he, he is finally doing it now. But, you know, everybody criticized him for when he did it to Hillary Clinton. And that's why she continues to blame him for her failure. You know, and it's not even his style to be mean about it. He's just telling mm-hmm. the truth. Like mm-hmm. there are so many video compilations about Joe Biden that you can watch. You know, and one of those video compilations begins with Trump's criticism of Biden, and it's 100 percent correct. It's like he's ran for president like three times. He's never polled more than one percent. You know, and I was like, wow, he's right. I remember when I was working for Senator Gravel, he didn't poll very high either. But we were never worried about Joe Biden in 2008. You know, it was like he's not even a factor. And if it weren't for the fact that Barack Obama had made him his running mate, we wouldn't even be talking about that guy anymore. You know, he would be like God. You remember Frank yeah. Dodd? Nobody really yeah. talks about yeah, that guy anymore. I, yeah. think he, I think he's still a senator. He might be anyway, but the point is no, he would have just no, been another no senator. Longer. He retired, yeah. You got Murphy up, up there Dodd, and uh, 
Yeah, uh, I don't know what his first name was. Oh, t- you said, oh, I'm thinking of Dodd. Dodd. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I'm thinking of Dodd, too. He ran in 2008 briefly and then was gone. Mm-hmm. You know, but mm-hmm. the point is, is that nobody remembers that guy now. And that's exactly where Joe Biden would have been if he hadn't been picked as Obama's VP. You know, and mm-hmm. that's why that this whole thing is, is to me, at the end of the day, I mm-hmm. think that the establishment, once again, putting the quotes on the party beneath the parties has decided that it is in their best interest even to lose to Trump again than it would be to allow Bernie Sanders and the progressive wing to take control of the Democratic Party. I think that they've done their calculus, and then at the end of the day, you know, they've decided that that will be what they'll do. And then on top of it, they'll blame us. It'll be our fault again. You know, it'll right. be Bernie yeah. Sanders supporters who wouldn't vote for Biden. You know, and then Bill yeah. Maher, a guy that I swear, Bill Maher, I think I would slap him if I was ever on stage with that guy. You know, we'll say it's all your fault for your purity test. You you had to be pure. You could have voted for Hillary and it would have been so much better. And I was just like, oh, my God, shut up. I'm like, it's like <laughs> you're such a fake. Like, you know, dude, seriously, just shut up. You know, that's why I was glad. Like, I think it was Dr. Cornell West, like, kind of argued with him quite a bit about the Bernie thing because, you know, he still thumps on him. And, and Bill Maher is the one who said, you know, that. The funny thing is he said this and I thought he was just trying to be a comedian, but he said, you know, just ignore the progressives. They've got nowhere else to go. And I was like, well, that was a pretty lame thing to say. And then I was watching a piece of a documentary that I guess was about Ralph Nader. And there was a guy who used to work for the Democratic Party at a high level. And he said, that's exactly what they told us. Ignore the progressives. They've got nowhere else to go. I didn't have to listen to anything any progressive ever said when I worked for the Democratic Party. And he said, and they will continue to vote. It was like they will continue to do what they are doing unless they have a reason to believe that you will mm-hmm. not vote for them. And he's right. He's 100 percent right. And I think that essentially people ask why Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard won't go 30 par- third party. And it's the same reason why Ross Perot gave up was like it's just they, they own the Electoral College. You know, the, you, there's no chance. You know, yeah, I, I think right. That, I think and gerrymandering and, uh, you know, right. the whole bit about who can vote and who can't vote and and what they have to go through to turn circles in order to be able to justify voting. Um, I mean, I think it's actually we have a country where the majority, the minority has the majority power. Uh, right. And it's because of the rules and, the, you know, the regulations and the, the irre- and and who who contributes the money, the big money. Sure. And that's that's the plutocracy. You know, and I I had Senator Gravel on my show actually about four or five days ago. And we talked about the, the founding of the Constitution and that mm-hmm. a lot of people don't recognize that it was always meant to be a plutocracy from the start, mm-hmm. that there were people like James Madison, who literally was quoted as saying the wealth of the nation should rule the nation, that it was his entire intention through the whole thing that we weren't going to have nobles anymore, but we were going to have aristocrats who essentially just yeah. ran everything anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, the wealthy landowners of the United States. And that's why they got rid of our democratic powers, because in the early days, the colonies governed themselves by democratic referendum through town halls. You know, and Mm -hmm. if you didn't agree with what the town hall decided, you were still free as an individual citizen to do whatever you needed to do. You know, um, they, they show that a little bit in the movie The Patriot, which it's a fictional film, but that was an aspect of the way the colonies were that they got correct. I'm sure you know, it was. I'm sure it was. You know, speaking of uh, 
I would like to kind of finish this uh, on uh, with Bernie Sanders again. You know the sure. the gun right issue, and you know he's in from Vermont, so he adhered to that uh, to, for his constituents up there, I guess. But he always ran as a Democratic Socialist, but he managed to get the Democratic Party not to oppose him. Uh, in other words, uh, if he won the primary, uh, or if he, or they wouldn't have somebody in the primary, so he would end up being the lone representative uh, to to face the Republican candidate, and I think that's how he gained his power in many ways. Um, and he's not really been, you know, uh, that cooperative in his in his history uh, legislatively, and I think supporting other candidates within his within the Democratic Party, which is which is okay, all well and good. But I mean, I just think he he. I wish he had taken it a step further and become more bold. Uh, and it's just become. I think he's really become conciliatory in his program in his willingness to play within the Democratic Party and play within the the capitalist uh, and uh, free market system. So he's not really a socialist, okay? He's a free marketer. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't just recommend these uh, entitlements within the system. He'd go outside the system, but he's just as unwilling to do that because I think it's self-interest. It's it's gaining power. Okay, it's it's the manipulating the system to get power is I think his uh, mo as well as it's the mo of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. But uh, it, uh, the loser in that I think is the people and the the, the country and the nation and the community. You don't have political leaders who really are willing to take chances and have be courageous and speak to truth truth to power or truth to party or truth to principle okay and uh, i think so uh, even though i think bernie sanders has gone beyond probably every other democratic candidate in the history of this country within the democratic party he is still not uh, strong enough uh, or uh, radical enough to even represent the tenets of what socialism is all about. So in a way, I think it's a, not a, a good label that he that he possesses to say he's a democratic socialist. Well, you, you know, just like the democratic well, socialists of America, they they bend and, and, and they get practical and let's be realistic and. This guy Michael Harrington, who I admired in his young years, uh, I no longer admire because he compromised. Right. Well, you know, one of the things I was going to say regarding um, that is that the whole point of this broadcast was to draw a distinction between Bernie Sanders, you know, and the fact that you, you know, a full-on card-carrying socialist, have said that he's not radical enough. <laughs> you know, it definitely plays into his point that he's trying to make that I'm not that radical, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. th 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 right. you know, and that, that, that was the point that he's been trying to make this whole time. And I, I agree that there is a certain degree of, of working towards power, but I also think that at the end of the day, and this is something else that I tell, you know, my conservative friends and more and more of them are starting to come around to what I'm getting at, which is that, 
you may not agree with everything this guy wants to do, but you got to at least agree that he actually legitimately cares. He, you know, he cares. He, he right. really does right. care. And if he's working towards power, it's because he wants to help those people. And, you know, and unfortunately that's just the way it is. I mean, it's, you know, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's about that. And I, and I have gotten some of them, for example, I have Republican friends because in the, the primaries in Michigan, you can vote in any, in either primary or both. Um, and so some of my Republican friends, because of what I said, did go ahead when they went to vote and vote for Bernie Sanders, um, you know, on that part yeah, of their Neil, ballot. Neil, does he, does Bernie Sanders care enough? That's my question. That's my challenge. You know, I care, you care, he cares. Okay. But does he, did he, does he care enough to stick his neck out? Okay. You know, he, he stuck his well, neck no, I out understand within, what you're saying. With, and and Jimmy mm-hmm. Doris said something similar. I think that part of the problem is is that the way our system is designed, you you basically have to play like a Game of Thrones level of, you know, uh, intrigue in order to try to get anything across. And that that kind of brings me back yeah. to something that, you know, I remember we discussed this before, and I've quoted you on, on this or in conversations that I've had. Is that part of partisan politics? Is that you run for office, you would like to win, if you can't win you at least draw attention to your ideas, you know, and a perfect mm-hmm. example of that was, um, well, I mean, at the beginning of this is I literally started laughing out loud at the first democratic debate because mm-hmm. a lot of the things that everybody said, Bernie was crazy for saying in 2016, suddenly mm-hmm. everybody was trying to say, and, and that's mm-hmm. how you win the war of ideas. Um, and it's, it's a slow process. It's not always about one election. Sometimes it's about, you know, the elections are just battles in a larger war. And mm-hmm. sometimes you got to decide, well, is expending all my resources in this battle worth it? Because I might lose the larger war, you know, but then Andrew Yang is another excellent example. And it was ironic how fast that, that chicken came to roost, but everybody thought his UBI was just a ridiculous concept. And now all of a sudden you got Mitt Romney, <laughs> perhaps my least favorite Republican of 2008, who's going, yeah, we need to give everybody a thousand bucks right now. (laughs) And and I was like, well, look at that. You know, he ran for president. Andrew Yang was not going to win this time, but he still influenced the, you know, the, the conversation. And because of this pandemic, it put it in a situation where even the white house reached out to Andrew Yang and said, can you tell us about this universal basic income thing? (laughs) (laughs) So um, we're down what's, to the what's last the name two of the, minutes. Go okay. ahead. What's the name of the, the congresswoman from Hawaii, uh, 2D or – Tulsi Gabbard. Um, Tulsi, she actually came up with the idea of $1,000 before he did, from what I read. Uh, she well, mentioned yeah, she it. Maybe, maybe it was just it. with regard to the idea before, but she did openly say she agreed with it on the debate stage. Yeah. But, Okay, but um, she so, did bring it up, I guess, with regard to the uh, the coronavirus. Uh, oh yeah, presence. oh no, she she proposed that immediately. The, the, but the point is, is that it got pushed into the the, the common parlance because of that. But she mm-hmm. openly, when Andrew Yang was describing it, Tulsi Gabbard, like in the middle of the debate, like she had not come into it thinking that. She just listened to what he said and went, "I have to tell you guys, mm-hmm. I agree with him. This is a great idea." So can you mm-hmm. tell everybody again of where to find your blog? www.twopartytyranny.org. That's T U O T. Excuse me, T U O P A R T Y T Y R A N N Y dot org. O R G. 
So there's no periods in between two-party tyranny. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. I'm going to leave you with some clips from George Carlin. Brian, I'll call you off the air, just a brief conversation after we're done here. Um, okay. And I'm going to leave you with some issues well, about our differences. thank you very much, uh, Neil. I appreciate the opportunity, and it, I did enjoy the uh, exchange. I agree, and I hope to have you on again. Here we go. Now, to balance the scale, I'd like to talk about some things that bring us together, things that point out our similarities instead of our differences, because that's all you ever hear about in this country is our differences. That's all the media and the politicians are ever talking about, the things that separate us, things that make us different from one another. That's the way the ruling class operates in any society. They try to divide the rest of the people. They keep the lower and the middle classes fighting with each other so that they, the rich, can run off with all the fucking money fairly simple thing happens to work. You know anything different, that's what they're going to talk about. Race, religion, ethnic and national background, jobs, income, education, social status, sexuality, anything you can do, keep us fighting with each other so that they can keep going to the bank. You know how I describe the economic and social classes in this country? The upper class keeps all of the money, pays none of the taxes. The middle class pays all of the taxes, does all of the work. The poor are there, just to scare the shit out of the middle class. Keep them showing up at those jobs. 